Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, posted on May 16th, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. On this episode... So what the dolphins do is they provide these very, very coordinated, specific cues to the fishermen to indicate that the fish that the fishermen are looking for are present. That's Lee Dugatkin. He's an evolutionary biologist and behavioral ecologist at the University of Louisville. He's the author of the book Principles of Animal Behavior, and he's the co-author of an article in the June issue of Scientific American called The Networked Animal, along with Matthew Hassenjager, a doctoral candidate in Dugatkin's lab. I called Dugatkin to talk about the article. He recorded his side of the conversation in his office, which is apparently right next to the Louisville airport. First, you just got back from Mongolia, which is not a place... Uh, that most people in the U.S. have visited. What what were you doing there and what was it like? Yeah, I was there for about eight days and I have a colleague at the National University of Mongolia and he had me come over. Um, I gave a couple of kind of classic uh, research talks on my own work, uh, the kind of things that were going on in my in my laboratory. But I was also there to do a two-day crash course on behavioral evolution. The uh, the Mongolians have a really strong program in ecology, but they don't really get trained very well in behavior and evolution. And so my colleague, Boldgive, wanted me to come over and um, and give them an overview of the kind of work that was done on behavioral evolution because they, you know, they don't do a lot of this behavioral work. On the other hand, they have absolutely amazing populations, especially of large mammals, you know, of, of everything you can imagine, from wild asses to wild horses to camels to goats and sheep that would make wonderful study systems for people who are interested in, in behavioral evolution. Um, but again, they, they just aren't, they just haven't been trained in that. So I went over and um, gave a course to about, I'd say, 40 to 50 um graduate students, some, even some young faculty members. And, uh, you know, I gave them the basics that you might cover in, uh, in, a, in a semester class, but just sort of in crash form over two days. It was really, really a lot of fun. And um, they enjoyed it. And my colleague told me people were already talking about the kind of things they could potentially look at behaviorally in some of the systems that, you know, they haven't studied behaviorally. So I think it was, uh, it was, a, it was, a success and it was otherworldly in terms of just being someplace that far away and that different than than what I'm used to. Um, we went out a little bit outside the city of Ulaanbaatar and to the mountains and um, saw some of the Mongolian countryside, which was incredible. Um, and uh, so overall, I think it was uh, both a productive and uh, a fun experience. And what do you, what does it actually mean when you say behavioral evolution? Yeah, I mean that, um, you know, they basically go out and, um, you know, let's say they're studying a wild horse population or um, a, a wild ass population or something like that. They're going out and they're sort of taking information about the basic ecology of the organisms. You know, where are they? Um, how many of them are there? What are they eating? That sort of thing. Whereas a behavioral ecologist might be asking questions about the kind of social strategies that organisms live when when they live in herds or packs like that. What kind of aggression is going on? Are there dominance hierarchies? Are some individuals more cooperative than others? 
who chooses who as a mate? Um, how do they determine where they're going to live? How does information flow through groups? That sort of thing. Which is exactly what the article in the June issue of Scientific American is about, although we're, we're talking about a, a really more, even more, I think, detailed kind of analysis of the roles of the individuals in groups and how they interact with each other in, in the right, article. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, the, the social network approach is exactly that. It's, it's trying to understand that interface between, um, individuals in the groups that they're in and, and how, and how, can, and how can we understand both sort of what the individual does and how that cascades through groups to create sort of group level phenomena. So let's talk a little bit about the article. We don't have to uh, talk about every detail of the article because the article's there and people can read it. But let's talk about, first of all, the the idea of analyzing animals other than humans in a network context. Where does that come from? Well, it's a long time in the making. Um, you know, so I, you know, a, a sort of brief two-minute history of the way that people study behavior in, in non-humans would go something like this. You know, initially people tended to think of animals um, as little robots that were essentially that were programmed by by their genes. And so, you know, if you um, if if you watch them in nature, they you could think of them as sort of automatons that were responding to some code. And in this case, the code was a genetic code. So, you know, something happens and the code says do X and that's what you do. Over time people began to realize that 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 was a very simplistic view that it's that it certainly plays a role Genetics certainly play an important role on how animals behave, but it's much more complicated than that. And so they began to look at the way that social interactions um, dictate, you know, sort of what happens next when individuals interact with each other. So it, it, when you when you study the world that way, you, for example, look at a pair of individuals and you realize that how they behave towards each other is partly a function of their genes, but it's also partly a function of what happened the last time they behaved, you know, interacted with each other, or what happened when one of them interacted with somebody else two days ago. Those things really matter when you're trying to understand why animals behave the way that they do. Over time, people began to realize that even that was sort of an oversimplification of, of, of what happens in animal behavior. And that's when the social network approach became, became much more prevalent. And, and the idea here is that it's, you can't even think about sort of pairwise interactions. Um, individual one interacts with individual two, and the next time they meet, they do something different based on experience. Now the social network approach says everybody in a group may potentially affect everybody else, either directly or indirectly. So what I do right now might be a function of my interactions with you and Bill and Mary and Sam, but it might also be a function of Sam and Mary's interactions with each other that indirectly cascade back to me through interactions that they've had with other individuals who I then interact with. And so it's, it's, it's a view that suggests that information flow within animal groups is, is really important and, and really prevalent and that it, that it potentially can help us explain some of the really complicated things that go on in, in animal groups. 
and it's sort of self-evident when you when you consider let's say an infectious agent that if a a virus can go through a group and the original individual that had the virus can spread it throughout the entire group with with the last member of the group having never seen the the original carrier of the virus i think people have an an understanding of that but what you're saying is you know the way you look at the way a looks at b and then b saying well why do you look at me like that and then b treats c a different way and c wanders over to d and says well you know i'm having a bad day too and all of a sudden z is 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 getting the back of somebody's hand because of the way a looked at b that's right. That's right. It, it's those it's it's those kind of complex, indirect things that may be much more important than than we've given um, animals credit for. And even you know you know even your example of the infectious disease. I think that's that's you're right. This is a, that's a very intuitive one. It's it's because because there's sort of something that's clearly moving between members of a group. In that case, it's a disease. But 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 if you think about the social networks. And behavior stuff really broadly. Imagine that that's something that gets introduced into the group is a new behavioral tradition. For example, figuring out how to get at a new food source, right? Or how to dig up something that nobody had ever figured out how to dig up from the ground and eat. So now you have this thing, a new behavioral tradition that perhaps one individual, maybe just by luck, comes upon and realizes, hey, you know, this is a really good way to get food or it's a really good way to avoid danger. If others in the group are paying attention and looking at this, then that piece of information, that behavioral tradition can spread through a group just like a virus could. And so it's all of these things that people who study social networks now are really uh, becoming interested in, in, in terms of, um, how does this structure what we see out in nature in, 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 in real animal groups? Why, we're both big Yankees fans. Just look at what's going on. The, the Yankees are all growing mustaches. So that's, right. and, so that's, that's sort of a ridiculous yeah. example of how right. a behavior can spread through a group. Right, right. It, it is, you know, and, 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 but, you know, at the same time as it being kind of this, you know, uh, cute example with, 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 with our beloved Yankees, um, it's also, you know, even in, even in non-humans, there are examples where behaviors get introduced into groups that on the surface sort of seem to be trivial. Like there's, there's no reason, there's no reason, right, that, that the Yankees should be hitting any better because they, they have mustaches. I mean, you know, they're just, they're the same players they were before the mustaches. But if it creates, for example, a group solidarity, if it creates a sense of being part of something that's larger than the individual, then, then we know sort of from psychology that that, that has, that can have real f- physical consequences. And, you know, we don't have as much information about that in, in non-humans, but certainly, for example, um, there's this wonderful set of studies that, that were done, that have been going on for 50 or 60 years now in, um, various chimpanzee populations, um, mostly in Africa. And, um, there are these six long-term studies of chimpanzee populations. And, 
Um, these behavioral traditions are really important in chimps. That kind of makes sense. They're our closest living relative, and and they use culture more than probably any other animal. But they do all these weird things that are like equivalent to um, the Yankee mustaches. You know, some in some populations, individuals do this ritualized, stereotypical. We have no other word before it besides dance when it starts to rain. Nobody knows why the chimpanzees in one of these populations do this, but somebody started doing it at some point. It may create bonds between males or between um, mating partners, and you see it in some populations of chimpanzees, but if you go to other populations of chimpanzees, you don't see it. And what the social networking approach lets us do is try and figure out, you know, how does that happen? Are there some individuals, for example, that everybody else looks to as kind of the central individuals in the group who set the trend? That might be, for example, could, could be the oldest female, could be the biggest, strongest male, could be something else. But if there are these kind of central individuals through which, through which information spreads out, then we can use the all of these sophisticated mathematical techniques that people in the social network world have developed that allow us to sort of track how that information can flow be within a group and maybe even between groups. Yeah, it's really pretty amazing. Um, you, you talk in the article about uh, the observations of this tribe of macaques. Now, that's that's at the Yerkes Center in, in Atlanta, so it's uh, it's it's not a a wild situation, but right. they're, they're living in a group and they're having legitimate interactions, even though it's not in a completely, you know, quote, natural, unquote, setting. And uh, there was work done that you talk about where uh, particular individuals were removed from the group to see what would happen. Yeah, this is this is a this is a, a great study. Um, it, so the macaques live in these um they live in groups and there are all sorts of complex rules associated with macaque groups. And it turns out that in, in, uh, in groups, there are a couple, you know, a few individuals that are, are uh, referred to by, by animal behaviorists as the policers. And, and what they do is they sort of keep order. They, they tend to be higher up in the dominance hierarchy. And what they do is they, they break up fights, for example, when the fights occur between other individuals in the group. So they're kind of a law and order part of the group. And what, um, what the researchers, this team was led by um, a researcher by the name of Jessica Flack. What, what they did at Yerkes was the equivalent of um, what geneticists do when they do a knockout experiment. So what they did was they went in and they basically removed the police and the policing individuals. Okay. So when they did that, they got a, they got a number of things that happened. The, the, the first thing that happened and the one that would sort of be the most intuitive was, you know, you take out the police, there are a lot more fights. Um, and this is the sort of thing that you might expect, but all of these other emergent things came up when they took out the police. So for example, individuals played with each other less when they took out the police individuals groomed one another less when they took out the police. We don't know exactly why, but you could you could certainly envision hypotheses like, you know, playing with each other. You, you, 
you have to have a certain level of comfort um, in, in order to feel like you want to play. And maybe when these policing individuals aren't around, that level of comfort goes down and you're not quite ready to, to, to do this kind of relaxing thing because the whole situation is, is, is not nearly as comforting to you. The other thing that happened was that one of the things that, that, that social network people do is they kind, they, they measure the extent to which a group is made up of subgroups. And what happens when you take out the police is what in the article we refer to as this kind of balkanization. The, the group itself still exists, but it sort of breaks up into smaller subgroups. And all of a sudden, st- instead of one homogeneous group, you've got these, you've got these subgroups that, um, you know, generally speaking are not interacting aggressively with each other, but it's certainly not as kind of a pro-social group-like situation as, as you had before. All of that comes from just re- removing policing individuals, demonstrating how much these kind of complex, indirect effects manifest themselves. I mean, there's no way we would have thought that individuals might play with each other less if you took out the police, or that they might groom each other less. You know, you and I right now, I certainly came up with possible explanations for why that might be, but I never would have guessed that would happen beforehand because it's because it's not something that jumps out at you until you until you actually do the social network analysis. Right, and you also talk in the article, there, there's some material about birds, and we'll let people read the article. That's also really interesting. But the one that's kind of just flabbergasting is the one with the dolphins. Yeah, this, this is, this is um, an incredible study, set of studies, um, that, um, you know, of course, people have, have long been, been, been fascinated by, by dolphins just in terms of, uh, of what we think they're capable of, you know, cognitively, that they're really smart animals. And, um, there's a team of researchers laid by a game, by a guy by the name of David Lusseau. And, um, Lusseau was watching dolphins, uh, over on the other side of the world in New Zealand. And he was doing this, um, he was, you know, doing some basic social network analysis. He was trying to understand sort of how information flows through these groups. Well, to make a long story short, he eventually hooks up with a fellow um, in Brazil, Paulo uh, Simos Lopez, who is working on a population of these bottleneck um, dolphins in Brazil. Well, these dolphins do the most incredible thing. They have this, um, what they essentially do is they interact with human fishermen who are out there just trying to get their food. And the dolphins and the humans together hunt down the fish. So what the dolphins do is they provide these very, very coordinated specific cues to the fishermen to indicate that the fish that the fishermen are looking for are present. So they might slap their tails in a very, very specific, understood way. That means that there are fish that you fishermen want to get. Throw your nets out now. And of course, the dolphins also presumably get more food by having these fish netted. They get more food themselves, but the fishermen get more food as well. And so if you go out there, you can see the fishermen are clearly waiting for signals from the dolphins. The dolphins are clearly there trying to provide these signals to fishermen. Well, above and beyond that 
in and of itself incredible kind of dynamic between between the humans and the dolphins, it turns out that not all dolphins are particularly good at this, or at least not all dolphins like to interact and provide humans with these with this kind of information. So if you look at about the, you know, I guess it's about four to five dozen dolphins that they've been studying um, in these interactions with the fishermen. And if you do social network analysis, it turns out that this group of, you know, 50 to 60 dolphins is really composed of three subgroups. In one of these groups, the individuals interact with each other all the time. All of them help the fishermen. In another group, individuals in that group interact with each other, the dolphins do all the time, but they never interact with the fishermen, right? And in a third group, most of the individuals do not interact with the fishermen, but there's one dolphin in that group that does. And so you get this tremendous variation. Some of these subgroups love interacting with humans. Others don't do it at all. And others typically don't, but some individuals in there do. We don't know yet how all of this is determined. So we don't know, for example, in the group where all the dolphins are nice to the humans, we don't know if they teach each other that, if they just sit back and watch and learn from one another, if this might have some perhaps indirect genetic component, unlikely, but it's probably a teaching thing. They teach each other other stuff, but we don't know if they teach each other how to interact with dolphin, with, with humans. We don't know in that weird group where almost nobody interacts with humans, but one individual does, you know, what's special about that individual that it's determined that it's going to interact with humans. And, and how does that individual interact with the dolphins that typically like humans and the dolphins that typically don't like humans. All of these dynamics are the kind of thing that social networks are beginning to allow us to look at. Right. And if you don't do the social network analysis, though, then you don't know what to look for. That's right. If you don't do that, if you didn't do a social network analysis in this case, you would certainly see the dolphins helping the humans. That's, that, that, that would jump out at you no matter what. But if you wanted to understand what on earth could possibly create that kind of scenario, then you got to do the social network analysis because you would never know that there is this clique of dolphins that love each other and love humans. There's another clique that love each other and don't like humans. And there's a third clique where most of them love each other and one of them loves dolphins and also loves humans. And the way that that information about how to love humans or how not to love humans moves around is, is only possible when you, when you study these things from a social network approach. Right. And we may have actually caught the um, the group with the one member that interacts with humans, we may have caught that group in an early stage in its development where this individual that interacts with humans is going to bring that behavior to the rest of the group. That's at least a possibility. That is, that is a fascinating possibility. Absolutely. The other fascinating possibility might be the flip side of the coin, which would be, would be, I think, interesting if everybody else kicked that dolphin out. We, we don't know what's going to happen, right? right? I mean, it, it, it's possible that the, that tradition will spread within the group. It's possible that maybe they'll kick the dolphin out that interacts with humans. 
Maybe that dolphin who interacts with humans in that clique where they don't usually, maybe they'll just get up and move to the clique where they do usually. None of those things, you know, we don't know yet. Um, and, and, and all of them are sort of interesting possibilities. Um, and, 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 you know, hopefully we'll, we'll know more about this through time. You know, this really doesn't have anything to do with the, the network analysis, but when you think about the dolphin human interactions, the humans didn't teach the dolphins how to work with them. The dolphins taught the humans how to work with the dolphins. The dolphins trained the human fishermen. Absolutely. It's, it's incredible. And, you know, we, we just don't think like that. Certainly there are, you know, many people who, who, who spend their time figuring out how to train animals. But as you say, here's a case where, you know, we didn't even realize it while while it was happening, but they were essentially teaching us something. We, you know, I, I assume what the fishermen, you know, were focused on right away was getting more fish for themselves. But if you step back and you look at it, it's exactly what you said. It's it's them teaching us something. Um, and then this, you know, intricate co-species, uh, co-evolutionary thing where now all of a sudden we're both presumably benefiting from these interactions. And now we can look at the way that, you know, they influence each other. We influence them. They influence us. This is, this is where, um, a lot of the interesting stuff in animal behavior is going on these days. Yeah. And I think anybody who has a, a cat or a dog or any kind of other pet actually may have had the thought one day that, wait a minute, they're, they trained me how to do oh. you know, when to feed them or when to play with them. I didn't train them. They've been, they've, been, they've been doing behavioral modification on me the whole time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly uh, pet, pet owners are, uh, are legendary for telling you those sorts of tales. Yeah. Um, and, 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 you know, now, now uh, we can be looking at these things in, in, in larger groups. You know, we can actually go maybe, you know, it might be interesting to go and see whether or not, um, you know, th th these pets that are training us, whether or not um, in their natural groupings, these kind of things go on amongst themselves. And so it might just be a, uh, a small step for them to do teach us, even if it's, you know, unintentional. Right. They have this behavior in their toolkit to begin with to, to interact with, with their con specifics, but they just, uh, when they transfer it over to their interactions with us. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So I should say I edited the article and, and trust me, because I'm an unbiased source. It's a fascinating read, and uh, Lee Dugatkin, thanks a lot. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much. Again, the article is called The Networked Animal in the brand-new June issue of Scientific American, and look for Lee's last Scientific American piece, Jefferson's Moose and the Case Against American Degeneracy, in the February 2011 issue. You can also hear Lee and I discuss that article on a previous podcast. Just Google Lee Dugatkin, Scientific American, and Moose. It's a wild story. Check it out. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com, where you can read our article about the discovery of the first known warm-blooded fish. It's a fascinating find, and the fish, called an opa, O-P-A-H, is also noteworthy because it looks like an area rug. It's a big, round thing. Anyway, follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us.